Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Aaron Weinock, and I'm a, a interviewer with the New Books Network. And uh, today on uh, the Russian and Eurasian Studies uh, podcast, we're going to be talking to uh, Professor Roger Reese, uh, who's written a new book called The Imperial Russian Army and Peace, War, and Revolution. So thank you for being with us here, Roger. My pleasure. All right. Uh, Starting off, uh, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a bit about yourself, uh, you know, how you got into Russian history, uh, where you studied, what you, what you started off writing about, how you got interested in military history specifically, and, and so on. Okay, well, I, uh, I could have started earliest as I, I got interested in military history uh, pretty young, just uh, reading uh, in my spare time, and even as early as like fifth grade, somehow I gravitated to it. Uh, my father was in the army, so I lived on a lot of different military bases growing up, uh, for a few years at least. Uh, and so that was the origins of it. And then I ended up uh, going to university at uh, Texas A&M University with the intent of uh, becoming a, a, a commissioned officer. Uh, and I, I majored in history, obviously, because that's well, I should say, obviously, it, it, it appeals to me tremendously, but also it had the, the least um, mathematics requirements. Uh, <laughs> and that was even uh, even more appealing. So I uh, studied, uh, we didn't actually have a military history major, but um, I took, I concentrated my history classes in European history uh, and, and the few military history classes that we had. And... That's how I got interested in the Russian military. I uh, had a very uh, encouraging uh, professor out of Chester Dunning. He's just retired, actually, a few years ago. Took a couple classes with him on Imperial Russian history and on Soviet history. And I just found found it uh, immensely intriguing. So from there, uh, I just kind of filed that away and went off to the Army and did uh, three years uh, in the Army and decided that that was enough. I you know, had a good time, made a lot of good friends, but I, I just couldn't see doing that for, for a career. So I went back to uh, graduate school. I went to graduate school at the University of Texas, where I studied under uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick, uh, who doesn't do military history at all. Uh, and I really just focused on Soviet history, because, of course, in the Army back in the 1980s, our uh, prospective uh, opponent there was the Soviet Union, and so everything we did was about you know, countering the Soviet army. So that, that you know, piqued my interest as well. So uh, working with Sheila Patrick, I, I did a topic on the Soviet military. Not that she was uh, really encouraging about that <laughs> at all, but it worked out. Uh, it, was, it ended up being my very first book, which is called um, Stalin's Reluctant Soldiers. Published uh, in the 19, uh, 1996, I guess, by University Press of Kansas, and so from there, uh, my, my graduate training was strictly in the, the 
uh, well, the Soviet era back then, we were studying in the 1980s, we kind of ended things with Stalin. So 1917 to 1953, that's, that was the extent of Soviet history. But uh, you know, subsequent book projects uh, compelled me to expand my, my vision forward to, you know, to after Stalin and to Cold War, into the war in Afghanistan. And all the while I'm doing that, what, as a faculty member here at, at Texas A&M, uh, uh, we have an Imperial Russia course, and the professor who was teaching that retired. And so I volunteered to teach it just because uh, as, as I was studying Soviet history, I kept, there were all these hints about, well, this isn't all that unique. This is a holdover or some of this continuity from the old regime to the new regime. So uh, as I prepared lectures and learned more about the Imperial Russia, Imperial, about Imperial Russia, um, I became more interested in also expanding my vision about military back in time. And that's how I kind of ended up work, looking and learning uh, about the Imperial Russian Army. And uh, every, every now and then I'll come across things, concepts, information, personalities, and like, wow, I wish, I wish I'd known this when I was writing about Soviet history. Mm -hmm. Definitely um, definitely continuity that, that affected the Soviet period that uh, I would have done uh, a better job explaining some things in the Soviet period if I'd known more about the Imperial period. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the big picture there in a, in a nutshell. Thank you. Uh since you bring up, uh, you know, going back into the, the imperial there, that I, uh, you know, your book is, is basically focused on the period since the uh, end of the Crimean War up to the revolution there in 1917. So I was wondering what, uh, what was the logic behind uh, starting in 1856 there at the end of the reign of Nicholas I in the Crimean War? What, what for, you know, given your, your topic, uh, what makes that a, a logical point to start versus, you know, at the beginning of Nicholas's reign or something like that? Yeah, that's a, a really logical question. So um, the, there was just a huge break in Soviet history at that time. I mean, sorry, Russian history at that time, because the loss of the Crimean War uh, and all the, the deficiencies that it revealed about Russia you know, economics uh, and society in particular uh, gave Alexander II, the, the new czar, the opportunity to make drastic changes. Okay? And so those drastic, drastic changes, everything based you know, out of the emancipation of the serfs, set up a real a new era. You know, this is where, you know, the late imperial period really starts at that point. And it's very important for the military because uh, Actually, that was one of the excuses that they gave for making the changes is to be regain the military standing in Europe. But what was especially important because doing social history is from that point on, from the, the gearing up for emancipation and changing how the army was going to man uh, the forces and the, and the ser formerly serfs, not peasants, were now going to be citizens uh, to one degree or another. Uh, completely changed the outlook of the soldiers. From Peter the Great up to 1855, or, or almost up to the emancipation, um, peasant soldiers expected to be treated pretty badly. They didn't want to be or look forward to that. They just, 
that's how it was. Things weren't changing. They were at the bottom of the social order, uh, powerless, and that's just how it was. But, all, but with the emancipation and peasants be, be getting civil rights, uh, property rights, freedom of movement, great, much greater access to education and social mobility, um, their expectations of how they would be treated in the military by the superiors was just a night and day difference from, from their fathers or grandfathers in the pre-reform army. So you, uh, you mentioned here that the peasants' former serfs' expectations changed quite a bit, but reading your book, uh, the overall story here seems to be a, largely a continuity story about those expectations not being met, right? Exactly. Uh, so, so what, uh, you know, just thinking about the, the periodization you've given here, say, uh, you know, during the, the reign of the, the two Alexanders, Alexander II and Alexander III, uh, what kinds of things don't change? Uh, what kinds of what kinds of reforms uh, you know are attempted anyway? How do those reforms fail? That uh, could you riff on that for a bit? Sure. Um, the the most important thing that didn't change was the attitude of the uh, hereditary nobility overall, but specifically the the officers. Um, they still saw peasant soldiers as being socially at the bottom of the heap and with no rights as citizens. Not, not only did they see them as not having those rights, but not even deserving those rights. Uh, and, and so, so there, there's just an inherent clash. Uh, now, that attitude, uh, I, I kind of made it really seem very stark right there, it did begin to erode, um, you know, after 50 years of that. So about after the turn of the century, uh, and even here and there before that, you will find some, I would say, in, uh, I guess enlightened is probably the, the, the best descriptor there, uh, officers who, who did have a, a really strong sense of uh, humanitarianism, who, who did see the peasants as soldiers. But even all the way up to the, the collapse and, and after the collapse, I mean, the revolution or whatever, you, you still have these um, reactionary, socially reactionary uh, officers who just had no regard for the lower class of peasants and workers as, as human beings. And they just treated them so horribly. Uh, which, of course, they, they could get away with that before emancipation. <laughs> but afterwards, uh, this just wasn't going to to go uncontested. So, so that was a, you know, a big missed opportunity. Um, and, and it, it wasn't, a, it, it genuinely was an opportunity because there, there were officers who said, you know, we, we need to change with the times. We, we need to be better to these guys and, and, and treat them like human beings. And in fact, uh, I think by 1912 is the last statistics they had, uh, 52% of all the officers uh, were not hereditary nobles, but had risen from this, um, either risen from the ranks or can't come from the peasantry or working class from civilian life. So that was a new generation that eventually would have become senior officers uh, and could have changed that culture. Uh, but the culture was extremely uh, resistant to change. And people who, who wanted to change, who tried to change, 
you know, if they had a superior officer who was, uh, again, you know, reactionary and didn't want change to happen, you know, he, he could stop that. He, he could uh, punish officers, his subordinates, for being humane or, or, or soft, as they, they might want to call it. And, and so that just that you know, the regiment commander has, was all powerful. He was like a, a czar in his own right in that regiment and set the tone. If you had a, a humane, forward thinking regiment commander, uh, life was, you know, I don't know if it would be good for soldiers, but it certainly wouldn't be that very bad. But if you had a, a and more typically, uh, a, yeah, a conservative or, or reactionary, uh, socially elite uh, regiment commander, or higher, uh, it was just going to be like there was no, there had been no emancipation. Uh, could you, uh, for the for the uninitiated here, I, I'm guessing people might be interested in what what is what is being treated poorly look like in practice? Like when you say that officers are you know treating uh, you know, kind of extreme view of the soldiers as being inferior. Uh, socially or culturally or whatever. What 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 form does what kinds of different forms does that take in practice? Yeah, that's uh, well, it took, uh, several different categories of, of how that played itself out. One was just in uh, quality of life. So the regiment commanders were responsible for housing, feeding, clothing their soldiers, and if they were a, a good commander, they spent the allocated money on good quality uniforms, good quality food, uh, proper bedding, uh, accommodations. Uh, you know, they didn't really have um, barracks for most of the troops un- until the turn of the century. It wasn't until under Alexander III in the 1880s that they, they started a massive barracks building program. So before that, the, the soldiers uh, were quartered on the population for like eight months of the year living with peasants. Uh, and whatever uh, quality of uh, combinations that might be. Uh, so, uh, but it, well, once they were in the barracks, then you know the officers had more control over uh, heating, uh, lighting, uh, you know, the, con- the cleanliness in, inside the barracks, that, that the state of health in there. So, yeah. So maltreatment would be uh, a bad officer would. Uh, not spend all the money on the welfare of the soldiers. He'd mistreat them by cheating them, uh, buying them inferior quality boots, inferior quality cloth for uniforms, uh, inferior quality food or insufficient amounts of food, and and pocket the difference. So corruption was uh, endemic, uh, but it was also very personally, you know, personally oriented. You have a good officer would not do that. Uh, A corrupt officer would, and there weren't a lot of institutional controls to uh, prevent that. So, so there's that that level of uh, maltreatment. The uh, other way is this actually uh, interpersonal relations, where uh, as a course of I wouldn't really say discipline because they had actually formal discipline, where you had guard houses and extra duty and things like that, but. This, in ordinary interactions between officers and men, there was physical violence. Uh, they used the term, or well, the term, uh, what was that? Uh, to teach uh, was also synonymous with the word to beat. <laughs> you know, go teach the soldiers a lesson. Uh, it also meant go beat them up. 
But any time a, a soldier, uh, for whatever reason, uh, irked a commander, he, he would just physically assault him, punch him in the mouth once, twice, three times, <laughs> knock him to the ground, kick him. Uh, I mean, this is colonels and majors and captains, lieutenants would, would do this. Uh, and, of course, the sergeants would as well. And the sergeants would get beaten by officers. It was just this interpersonal violence that was uh, officially, uh, after the emancipation, under the reforms, was officially, um, uh, I can't say abolished, but it was, it was officially proscribed. You're not supposed to do that. But it, was, it just wasn't very well regulated. It wasn't policed. And there were almost no consequences for actually continuing to engage in that behavior. Still, having said that, by the time World War I broke out, uh, that, that level of interpersonal violence or, or mistreatment by soldiers, or of soldiers by officers, had, had diminished considerably. Uh, and it kind of resurrected itself during the war. So it just had to kind of die out, or it didn't die out, it died down. But still, um, before the emancipation, uh, a soldier got smacked in the mouth and kicked and beaten. That was that much different from being on a surface state, being abused by the, the, the bailiff, steward, or the, the landlord, or his own father for whatever infractions. But those expectations had changed, that they... they they expected to be treated like uh, a free man with, with some kind of you know, human dignity. So it didn't take that much to, to cause a offense and resentment um, as, as the years go by. Yeah, in general, when you look at kind of the broad narrative in the imperial era, of course, the Alexander II era you know, has a reputation of being the <clears throat> liberalizing era especially before, I guess, 1866, when that assassination attempt uh, turned things around a bit. And then, of course, Alexander III, you know, has that reputation of being ultra-conservative, uh, kind of reactionary and so on. So I was thinking about when you were sketching out, you know, the experience of soldiers going forward, like, does treatment of soldiers actually tend to get worse during the, the era of Alexander III, or... Are you still seeing, in spite of the overall political context, that things are gradually getting better, just perhaps not getting better faster enough? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Alexander III, um, of all the czars in the, in the 19th century, was probably the least interested in military affairs. Uh, uh, he, he did stick his hand in there every now and then, and he certainly, of course, was on top of the... Uh, promotions of senior officers, but uh, he, no, I would say, uh, that to, be, to be direct, no, things did not get, get worse, that, that things did gradually improve, you know, year by year, um, just by having more, well, I shouldn't say just, it's a really complex process, but having more and more non-nobles becoming officers, that, that certainly helped. Uh, but there was no green light to uh, revisit, uh, re- return to the, the old uh, ways of, of being brutal on a, on a kind of official basis. Uh, that 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 stayed. The, the, the trend continued. Uh, Alexander is certainly known as being a reactionary. That that was more uh, political 
thing than actual with social relations. So that uh, you know, has an interesting effect of kind of nuancing our view of Alexander the Third a little bit. Uh, I was I was curious too. Um, you know, you've, so far, we've been talking about relations between the officers and the soldiers, kind of as though the officers are one thing. But as as your book discusses in some detail, they're really not. Right? There's all all kinds of divisions. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the social divisions between the hereditary noble officers versus the ones that more come up through the ranks. Yeah, that, that's actually quite a, a spider web of, of interconnectedness um, that, because um, we even within each category of you know, hereditary nobles and landed hereditary nobles and personal nobles and uh, people coming up through the peasantry or from the urban educated class, uh, all kinds of variations uh, of outlook. Generally, uh, even within the nobility, uh, well, particularly no, no nobility who wouldn't go into the military, um, there was a, a high degree of liberalism, that more skepticism about the autoc- autocracy as a system. And, of course, there, these people are related to their their army officers and whatnot. So that, that actually did kind of creep in that even among army officers uh, at all different social levels, there, there was an increasing uh, questioning of autocracy as being a viable political system for the long term. Uh, of course, you're going to, you're going to have your, your ultra reactionaries who have no doubts that this is the way to go. But, uh, uh, there, there was, there was, and particularly, it was exacerbated by Nicholas II, just, just because of him as the person being uh, seen as weak and vacillating and you know, indecisive. That um, a lot of officers turned against him and the system, whereas others just turned against him. So, uh, yeah, at, at all levels of of so- social. Rank within the military, you're going to have skeptic, more more and more liberal attitudes, okay? which is going to take a long time for them to become dominant. But but they are there, and of course they're at the lower levels, lieutenants, captains, whatever. It takes decades for those people to become generals and, and have a real impact. But so 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 you have your your general trend, and I'm I'm being kind of loose with this uh, of liberalism. Uh, but you also have your reactionaries, but you also have your radicals. Um, uh, uh, if you've studied the revolutionary movements in um, Russia at the, the late imperial period, they, a great many of the radical terrorists or the Marxists or the socialist revolutionaries came out of the nobility. So they have that wing that, that's rejecting uh, autocracy completely, wanting to destroy it and go into some kind of a socialist uh, government, you know, political and social system. Uh, and those people found their way into the military as well. So you actually had members of People's Will Terrorist Organization in the army, and, and they were all nobles. So that's, you know, that, those are the extremes, ultra-reactionary to bo- literally bomb-throwing revolutionaries uh, in uniform uh, from the wealthiest families uh, uh, you know, coexisting uh, course until they're found out uh, and the uh, the soldiers coming in from the below the non-nobles who are coming in 
was, was a, a real mixed bag. You have uh, a very large number saw commissioning in the army as a sort of a fast track to social mobility. You actually leave the peasantry behind or the working class behind and become a commissioned officer, which makes automatically made a person a personal noble, meaning their nobility wasn't passed down through their family, but they actually had noble privileges uh, in in Russian society. And they can become a hereditary noble if they reach the rank of colonel. So in that sense, this is a real mixed bag. It's like they're, they're joining for personal social mobility. They're making more money. They can marry, uh, you know, into a higher category of family. They want, uh, and you know, of course, and to be an officer, you have to have the you know, above average education. Of course, the average education in Russia was extremely low at the time, uh, but you had the above average education, which also opens the doors if you don't want to stay in the military. And and the question is, well, were they then attaching their values to autocracy because autocracy? runs the army and establishes a social system or were they really self-serving and like, well, I'll, I'll serve in the military now, maybe make a career of it, elevate myself and my family, but I don't really share in all the values of autocracy. I love the military, love that type of service, whatever, but still harbor doubts and be ready to work against the autocracy down the road. So we have all of that, um, and and definitely the there, then there comes the person of the czar. So people not when they commissioned, you know, they didn't swear loyalty to Russia or or a constitution or some kind of abstract uh, concept of, to, of the nation. They swore loyalty loyalty directly to the czar. And you know, how did the people feel about that? Well, at the upper levels and and the wealthiest of uh, the nobility. Generals, people who make it to general, have the, the access to the higher uh, cadet corps and the paid corps of pages for education. Uh, they really took took that seriously. It's like they served the czar, and they 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 saw him as a you know their I'm sorry, but not their, well, their benefactor, but also you know he he was the the, the locus of their uh, military identity. But people coming from the lower classes really seem not to have had that kind of a personal attachment to the person of the czar, the idea of the czar, um, but more of the idea of the nation uh, and the more abstract ideas of uh, citizenship and, and nationhood. So, and, and they wouldn't probably ever be around the czar ever in their whole military career. Whereas a senior officer got who got assigned to the guards regiments served in St. Petersburg, well, they would have been around the czar physically a lot. And so there's a, a personal physical connection there that the majority of the army, the lower rankers of, of the officer corps who come from um, the peasantry or, or, or lower classes would never have. So that that's also a, a rift there in the officer corps. People who identified personally with the czar uh, and people who maybe had a more an abstract and uh, a more skeptical view of the czar uh, coming up. So there was a real change going you know, underway, but you know, cult- cultural change you know, takes, you know, quite a long time. It's like, you know, turning a battleship, you know, that doesn't uh, happen on a dime. So uh, 
And so again, with, with the, I think the point you were trying to get me to, and I might be getting there now, um, the, uh, yeah, the, the lower ranking officers, the, the new generation coming in through the, the, the Junker schools uh, who have achieved that on merit in the 1880s, 1890s, they, they do have a different view of the political system, their place in it, their place in the army, that they also understood was different from their superiors. I think maybe this this might be a good time to bring up a couple of pretty important concepts you discuss in here. I personally, I thought this was, was uh, one of my uh, favorite parts of the book was where you're making that distinction between the uh, army of honor and the army of virtue. And I thought it might be useful to people to hear you talk about what are those what do those terms mean and what does the what's the significance of the transition from one to the other? Oh yeah, that's a. Uh... I don't know if you want to get me get into that or not, but I, I really like talking about that sort of thing. So um, from, I don't know, the Middle Ages or when, uh, maybe that might be going too far back, but uh, under um, monarchical systems, you know, uh, the king, the queen, emperor, empress, uh, uh, even and the, the princes and other principalities, you know, they, they were the commander in chief. They, they were the head of state. And the army belonged to them. It didn't belong to the government. It belonged to the people. It was their army. And they decided who got to lead it uh, and serve them personally. That the, the, the monarchs uh, chose people for their loyalty, uh, mostly. Uh, capacity kind of came second. And people were in, in an army, honor, army of honor. It was an honor to serve. You and how much honor you had was kind of a uh, was determined by the the monarch, and so how faithful you were to the monarch had a lot to do with how high you rose within the military hierarchy. So it was military service was really about pleasing the the monarch. So uh, not about uh, military proficiency, not about uh, success in combat; those those things helped and and were necessary. But you, as long as you had the, an in with the monarch or the or the royal family had a, a patron, that actually covered a lot more ground or promotion than uh, military competence. So then that was universal around Europe, you know, our armies of, of honor, okay? and typically only open to the the uh, nobility. With, with exceptions here and there. So uh, being an officer was a noble well, pursuit, sir, and you served the king, served at the pleasure of the king, and you got promoted at the pleasure of the king or, or queen, the, the monarch. So this begins to change, obviously, with the French Revolution, opening up of society, rise of the middle class, industrialization and urbanization, uh, and the technological advancements in military. And, and, the, and the growth of, of the military, militaries. So the size of, of armies. So typically now across Europe in the mid early to mid-19th century, the nobility couldn't provide that many officers. And they typically weren't that educated that, to, in order to handle the new technologies because uh, you didn't need an education to be an officer. Uh, you just needed to have the right social uh, qualifications. So... They 
gradually began, because of all these various factors, they being the armies of Europe, began opening up the officer corps to the middle class or, or, or non-nobles in general, we could say. People with uh, higher, higher educations or sufficient educations who wanted to serve. And so they start to come in in fairly significant numbers. And they don't have connections to the monarch or uh, the, the social pedigrees that would get them promoted uh, rapidly to higher responsibilities. And this bothered them, <laughs> right? It's like, I, I merit promotion by what I've done for this army, how I've performed in peacetime and in wartime. And to see officers who didn't merit promotion but had the social pedigrees and connections get promoted um, really bothered them. So the idea of being promoted on merit is the, is the concept that is the, of, of an ar- the foundation of an army of virtue. So you have this transition all across Europe of this, the, the people who deserve to be promoted on merit competing with people who are promoted uh, on, on basis of honor, on social status, social relationship. And by and large, other than the Russian army, Europe had kind of made that transition by the time World War I has broken out. There are still aspects of armies of honor, like, uh, so Russia had the guards uh, corps. All those guards units were exclusively noble uh, officers uh, with connections to, you know, to St. Petersburg, to the capital, to the czar, the royal family. Uh, but that was a small slice of the army, uh, like 22 battalions, now 22 regiments with you know, hundreds of, of non-guard regiments out there. So it had, had two armies coexisting, the army of merit out there, than the Army of Honor in St. Petersburg, but uh, and, and in Germany or, or Prussia, he still had he had guards units that that were intimately related to uh, Wilhelm II. But other than that, uh, the French, even Austro-Hungarian army, British army, they, they were armies of, of virtue that you, you did have to perform well uh, to succeed, and social connections would take you only so far. Uh, that it took merit to go farther. So, so this was a problem in the Imperial Army because they, the, they hadn't crossed that threshold yet, but they, they were approaching it. And the expectations of the, the younger generations of non-nobles um, were, uh, were very high, that, that they should have uh, a, fair, a, a fairer shot at the regimental commands, at, at, at promotions to general, than they were actually getting, and so that's going to you know another another dividing point uh, within the Russian officer corps. So, uh, where where all this is headed, really, in the long run, I think, is what's the role of of uh, the breakdown of discipline in the army? Uh, what, what does that contribute to the collapse of the monarchy and the? Uh, Bolshevik takeover and so on. So maybe maybe what we ought to uh, talk about next then is, um, you know, is there a tipping point you can point to where you know these yeah relations between officers and soldiers are improving, but perhaps not enough to to save discipline in the army during the First World War. It seemed to me like uh, between 
uh, events in the capital and then events in, in uh, Siberia and the Russo-Japanese War. It seemed to me like 1905 served as kind of a tipping point in the book, but I thought maybe you could elaborate on that or, you know, if I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, does that, does that seem about right to you? Yeah, I, I think you read my, my book correctly. You, <laughs> you understand what I'm getting at, that it, uh, in, in the rep, there was a revolution of 1905, uh, it lasted until 1907, uh, you know, in, amongst the civilians in, in all parts of Russia, uh, from uh, just from disgruntled peasants want, seizing the land to radical revolutionaries in the cities and uh, workers uh, wanting their their rights uh, respected and better working conditions. Uh, start, they started it, but the soldiers join in. Uh, in late 1905 and then continue through 1906, 1907. And their basic, so actually that's a low point that the, as society is revolting around them, the soldiers decide, well, that's, that's, they're saying the same things that, that we feel that we're not being treated respectfully. We don't have the opportunities uh, for advancement that we want. Uh, and it's and it's a conscript army. We need to kind of remind our, our audience of that. So they join in, and really across the board, their demands when, when they go when they mutiny, uh, and the, very few of them were actually violent uh, mutinies, but there definitely were some. But their mutinies were you know, refusal to obey orders, refusal to go to work, and and their demands were improve their quality of life. They they wanted sheets. Uh, on their bunks in the in the barracks. I mean, they had had sheets. They didn't have blankets. They had to wrap up in their overcoats. They wanted pillows. They wanted to get the food in the quantity and quality that they were ordered to get, that they were being denied, and they wanted to to you know not get beaten up so much. You know, and even then, in 1905, 1906, when they're making these these demands, the the level of physical violence is probably at its lowest in 200 years. <laughs> Uh, but they're still like it's it, it shouldn't happen at all. You know, we, we they agreed to corporal punishment for an actual crime, but just to get get smacked around because you you weren't quick enough to salute or stand at attention or whatever it was that it was just intolerable to that generation. So uh, and they wanted to, you know, shorter terms of service. It was six years, so they wanted to get that down to three. And they actually got that. So with the revolution of 1905 resulted in a constitution for Russia, the apparent end of autocracy, a creating of a, a parliamentary uh, monarchy, and uh, the, the uh, terms of the conscription were reduced to three years. The officers were told, you, you know, we, we are going to now issue sheets and blankets and pillows, and we're going to, We'll make sure the soldiers get the food that they're entitled to. And they weren't asking for more. They're just like, give us what we're entitled to. And so there was a real concerted, honest effort to do that. And so you can see um, the relations actually improved at that point. You say it took a while to get this implemented, but from 1908, probably, is a good point. 1908, 1914, things were on the rise. Relationships were improving. Treatment was improving. The quality of life was improving inside the military, uh, not just for soldiers, but even for the, the lower uh, ranking officers. You know, they, 
they they were feeling that we've kind of turned a corner here. Maybe we're going to get that army of virtue that, that we've been hoping for under a new constitutional system rather than the czar you know, exercising all this patronage. Although that actually was a false hope because the czar remained commander in chief. So, well, then with, at this point, you say, well, there shouldn't have been a revolution. The army should have remained loyal. But the, the problem was the war kind of undid all of that. Um, in fact, the, the, one of the first things the Tsar did was to get the Duma to agree to go out of session and kind of suspend the Constitution, which in effect restored autocracy, which emboldened the more uh, reactionary of the officers. Uh, and... Who, who had resented all this, you know, catering to the soldiers' uh, desires, not, and they didn't really uh, acknowledge that these, these were real needs. They were just what the soldiers wanted more, uh, kind of in denial that they had been treated poorly beforehand. So, you know, with the war, the, the progress not only stops, but it begins to get worse again. Uh, and it, it's really a direct result of the war. That the officer corps has to expand dramatically um, with short-term training of new officers who are uh, the qualifications are dropped, you know, less educated, uh, less imbued with uh, all the military ethos that's supposed to govern behavior, and you know, massive casualties among officers. So you get a, a kind of a deprofessionalized officer corps. Uh, in 1915, 1916, and then just, uh, of course, the quality of life declines, and life in the trenches is obviously not good. Uh, the quality of food declines, not by design, but but the whole country was having a food crisis, uh, logistical crisis, and delivering things soldiers needed. But but also, the, the, it's kind of inexplicable, the, the, re, the return of, of the physical brutality between uh, officers and men. And this was mostly on those more, you know, it's a personal thing, the, the reactionary type officers. And, and I'm just kind of thinking of this right now, but you know, it might have been just kind of anger that the soldiers had, had forced this amelioration of their conditions by the revolution. And it was like, well, we'll, we'll see how that goes. We're going to turn the clock back just to show you that we as nobles are, are still in charge. Uh, uh, but even, so you don't really see that so much among educated middle-class men who become officers. Uh, you, But surprisingly, you do see it among a lot of the, the peasants who become these wartime officers who are pretty much uncultured, uh, in, in used to the, the more physical, confrontational style within the, the peasant villages who bring that to the army and there's no one really to uh, put that in check. So, so yeah, it's, it's the war, the casualties, the demoralization of the, the idea that they're not going to win this war, uh, the idea of the futility of it. Uh, and and it, it's just a, uh, it's compounded by the fact that, yeah, the, the Tsarist government never really sold the war to the people. That it was not like the Great Patriotic War in World War II, where people were invested in that in that victory. They, they just really weren't in World War One. Uh, they didn't really see the sense of it, and so all the losses were were senseless. The suffering was senseless. Uh, 
I'm uh, I'm thinking about what you uh, how you're characterizing relations between officers and and the rank and file during the during the First World War there, and uh, trying to imagine then where that ex where that description fits in terms of the overall set of arguments about the reasons the autocracy collapsed and the reasons the, the Bolsheviks triumphed and so on. And, uh, I don't know, it occurs to me that in some ways your, your explanation kind of puts important individuals back into the equation, like it kind of puts Nicholas II back into the story of how the revolution happened. But at the same time, it looks like there's some kind of big structural factors that your that your explanation uh, points us to. Uh, so would you would you say that your your research in the book kind of points to a mix of, of individual and, and structural factors that create the autocracy's collapse? Definitely, it's quite a mix. Um, and and the personal is that the czar himself, um, where his reputation, not just within the military, but within Russian society, it was just in tatters uh, during the war uh, for a variety of reasons uh, that, that, that come to, that I'll get into those in just a second, but, but there comes a, a moment where the, the army has to decide, are we going to keep this guy in power or not? You know, and they decide not to uh, because of who he is and, and how he is perceived. He, he has been perceived from for a long time as, as being weak. Uh, of course, I'm going to also you know, preface this by he, to the bitter end, he did have some supporters, but their, their numbers are dwindling, um, you know, by the minute uh, as things go on. But um, he was perceived as weak, vacillating, and interfering. You know, he he went to the front to take charge of the army in 1915 after the, the major disaster of the, the German Austro-Hungarian summer offensive. Uh, and he didn't actually really take complete charge, but he was there, and people saw him as being in the way and ineffectual. Uh, the high command did. But he also had, uh, we, we all know, uh, his wife was German, and so uh, the, the rumors got started, and it just people believed them. It was basically fake news, but that she was a German spy. The, the, <laughs> Russian, pe- the Russian people across the board, and the civilians and soldiers, and even some officers, uh, believe that. It's like, well, yeah, we, we, we can't win as long as the czar's wife is selling secrets or, or giving secrets away to the Germans. You know, she, uh, It's kind of a, a reflection of a lot of uh, Russian xenophobia from that time. So, and, and they're talking about this in the trenches. It's like, you know, no point in attacking. We, we're going to lose. We're all going to die because the, the czarina is, is you know, selling us out. And, and the czar won't do anything about it. And there were actually very senior officers and even family members told him, you need to um, somehow like send her off somewhere <laughs> out, out of the capital, out of the public eye. So to, for your own good, he, he wouldn't do that. Um, then there's the, the, the Rasputin thing. The, you know, the idea that uh, Rasputin, the, the monk, he's the one who could keep uh, the Tsarevich, the, the heir to the throne, alive by um, stopping his bleeding because he was the hemophiliac. Uh, through hypnosis or, or whatever, or pr- and prayer and all this stuff. Um, the, the rumors were that, um, well, on the one hand, they're not actually the truth. Uh, Rasputin was sleeping with everybody and uh, every woman in Petersburg he, he could possibly get into bed, um, but not the Tsarina. 
Uh, he was he was smarter than that. Uh, he he kept his uh, complete uh, appropriate behavior around her. But the rumors were that of course he was you know they were they were living this uh, debauched had this debauched relationship, and that was a disgrace to the czar, disgrace to, the, to Russia. Uh, and again, people are saying you need to get rid of Rasputin, get him out of there. You know, get, it, but people believe that they really believe that that the. the, the Lorena was living a dissolute, disreputable life um, that discredited the whole monarchy. And, of course, being a spy doesn't help anything like that. And so people like, again, Nicholas, why aren't you doing anything? You're, you're weak. You're not, you're not taking charge of, of your wife there like you know, Russian men are supposed to. So that, that is a huge stain that just uh, <laughs> worked against him in everybody's eyes. So um, when... The soldiers revolt. And this is one of the interesting things. The soldiers who suffered the most, the guys at the front lines, taking the casualties and living in the trenches and with the frostbite and the bad food, they were the, not the ones to start the revolt. It was trainees in uh, the capital who, these are young guys, we're talking 19-year-olds who hadn't been to the front, uh, who uh, joined in with the revolution uh, actually, workers actually started the revolution. I'll make sure I don't get ahead, ahead of myself there. But, but for the army, the soldiers of the garrison, who were actually trainees uh, in, in basic training, getting ready to go to the front as replacements, uh, they joined in the revolution and supported it uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which they didn't want to go to the front. <laughs> They'd heard all the stories about what, what it was like up there, and they didn't want to go. So they're the ones who kind of gave the muscle to the revolution in the capital, and then came up with the infamous Order Number One, which um, you know, uh, Order Number One of the Petrograd Soviet, the alternative government to the, uh, the provisional government that, that emerged eventually. That um, one of the major demands that they wrote on their thing was like, "We will never be sent to the front." <laughs> it was very self-serving, uh, about protecting themselves from the. The war, but also protecting themselves from the officers. Like, don't give up your weapons. You don't have to salute off duty. You can do all these other things that ordinary soldiers around the world were able to do by this time. But once that word got to the front, that, that the people, the soldiers in Petrograd were doing that, the soldiers at the front, like, that's a great idea. <laughs> we should protect ourselves from the, our officers and form committees to decide what orders to obey. And and, and basically, the, the purpose of those committees was to keep from being sent on senseless attacks, incurring more casualties. I mean, that, that, that is the ultimate bottom line, is they wanted to have these soldiers' committees that would vote on uh, whether they're going to obey orders or not. But that was really about, we're not going to attack and sacrifice our lives for nothing anymore. So so they the soldiers up the front join in opposition to the czar and the government, um, but they don't start it. But at the time, it's actually the senior officers who play the at the, the high command at the front who play the critical role that they take advantage of the revolution in the capital to force the abdication. That uh, that last point you made uh, was was I thought. Perhaps one of the, the most uh, striking points in the book was how the 
the senior officers really kind of, um, what's the metaphor I need here, pulled the rug out from under their own feet. I hope I didn't just mix my metaphors uh, by, uh, by, by doing that. Uh, so could you, uh, you know, kind of, kind of clarify how that was, how that, uh, how their, you know, rejection of the czar is legitimate, ultimately contributed to their own dissolution as a class? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's, it's so ironic uh, <laughs> that uh, so, so with with the turmoil in in the capital, the uh, and the soldiers and the and the workers marched onto the the, the Duma, which was not actually in session. The, the old parliament uh, they declared this the Duma to be the new government. Uh, you know, it's just mob action, and so the the parliamentary members there decided, yes, this is a great opportunity to end autocracy, get a real constitution, and get Russia on the road to liberalism and victory in the war. So they contacted the high command and said, this is, what, this is what's up. Um, we can use this opportunity to get a responsible government, write a new constitution, uh, keep the monarchy, but not aut- autocracy, but change the rules and, and w- make the monarchy more of a figurehead, kind of like uh, Britain is, is today. So that was the proposal that the, the high command got, the generals at the front, and they looked at it and they're like, uh, yeah, we don't, you know, we're, they, they wanted to keep the monarchy. They were fine with that. Um, some of them, that, that they thought the proposal to have a responsible government and a new constitution, that was the way to go. Others, not so sure, but they all agreed, all, all the generals agreed. Uh, they actually sent a telegram out to all the army commanders, corps commanders, like, what do you think? do we use this opportunity to get rid of Nicholas? They, they wanted to get rid of that guy, not necessarily the monarchy. Well, they did not want to get rid of the monarchy, flat out. Want to keep the monarchy, just get rid of Nicholas. That was their goal. So they actually kind of preempted the, the civilians who, who were willing to keep Nicholas uh, and the monarchy, but under new terms. And so they, they forced him to abdicate. And they, they were hoping... But their intent was for him to abdicate to his son, right, uh, Alexei, the hemophiliac, knowing that he was too young to take the throne, so there'd be a, a regent, or someone would rule in, in his stead until uh, he grew up, and then they would hopefully have a, a say in who that would be, somebody obviously in the royal family. But Nicholas instead uh, abdicated to his younger brother, Michael, but Michael didn't. But okay, and then Michael kind of got caught, <laughs> like blindsided by that. He did not expect to be asked to be the czar that day. But as soon as the revolutionaries in the capital find out found out about the abdication, they said they would kill anybody who tried to assume the throne. And Michael decided that that was a real threat, <laughs> and declined to take the throne unless there was popular support for him to, to take it, knowing that that wasn't going to happen. And so now there's nobody on the throne. The monarchy is is vacant uh, and declared dissolved by the mob, by the radicals. And the civilians in civilian government in Petrograd and our officers at the front, the high command at the front all of a sudden found themselves in a situation they had not intended to create. Uh, the end of the monarchy, which had, you know, the monarchy is what legitimized an army of honor. You don't need a guards corps if you don't have a czar. Uh, to, to guard, uh, you don't know social mobility through connections anymore. 
Um, so those guys were absolutely devastated by that. Uh, it was like an instant transition to uh, army of virtue, which some people wanted that, and others didn't. But during the middle of a war, that was kind of a drastic uh, outcome that they did, did not intend. And so I suppose as the Brits say, that, that looks kind of like a pretty spectacular own goal uh, on the part of the, the uh, senior officers. So would it be accurate to say then that they just didn't envision that the, re the reaction that the urban radicals would have to that abdication, and that's why they didn't see that coming? I think you're exactly right, that they, they didn't really appreciate the depth and breadth of the revolution in the capital and the, the power of it, uh, and, and it was spreading across Russia. They they had they completely underestimated, uh, which was kind of typical of the senior elites, you know, the, the of their social classes to just underestimate the lower classes, and um, and so yeah, they 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 did not understand that they were dealing with the. A new animal. It took, it took him a few weeks to figure out that the Petrograd Soviet was a real political force that could mobilize people to get done what they wanted to get done. I guess uh, we're about out of time here, so maybe a maybe a good way of wrapping up uh, might be uh, to observe the following: that it, it looks to me like uh, the overall thrust of your book here is that. There were plenty of opportunities for the military to reform itself so that um, <clears throat> when the pressures of the First World War came around, that the army could have, you know, could have survived, uh, you know, its, its internal discipline could have survived and so on. But then for all the reasons that you've been sketching out, uh, that, that didn't happen. Does that, that seem a, uh, an accurate summation here? Yes, I, I would never say that the, the mutiny and the, the revolution uh, of the soldiers was inevitable. There, there, there were people who saw the way to change, who worked for that change, and they just didn't have the, the backing uh, and the time to make that change happen. And so in a lot of ways, that, that becomes another one of uh, history's great what-ifs, I think, that it's, that it's full of. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because there were other reforms going on in, in in civil society that were trying to, you know, make things better for everybody. And uh, I guess the Stalipin reforms were one of them. And he said, he told Nicholas to his face, like, we need 20 years of peace like after the revolution of 1905. Give me 20 years of peace and, and we'll get stability. And he didn't get, he got eight years of peace. And so in some ways, I suppose the, the, uh, all you know, the subject matter you're covering in, in your book, uh, you know, perhaps lend some credence to Stalipin's view there, uh, that perhaps the reforms in the, inside the military that you sketched out as evolving slowly over time, maybe that would have given them enough time to really emerge with, uh, you know, a new kind of officer dominating the scene. Right. It, it would have taken a, a, the whole new generation to make that happen. That's what, you know, I guess 20 years is a generation. That's what Stalipin was saying. Give me a generation. Right. Uh, it'll change, and and we'll we'll get the stability and, and the national commitment to to success that that we need down the road. Huh. Well, and as they say, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, uh, Roger. This is a uh, quite an interesting book, not something I've done a lot of reading on myself, so I was glad to expand my horizons a little bit. So thank you. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Okay. Uh, well, bye now. Bye-bye.